Let's take our Bibles then and turn to the book of Hebrews, chapter 3. We're using the church Bible, that's page 1002, 1002, Hebrews chapter 3. So do be, do be thinking of us as we go back uh, over to the UK uh, tonight, overnight, no sleep. Uh, the, uh, and think of me, this week I've got some major appointments. There's one little boy has already put his orders in. Uh, Grandpa, will, will you play Legos with me? So, uh, that Legos are on the agenda uh, in, a big, in a big way. And I'm really good at Legos, by the way. It's, one of my, it's probably the one thing I'm really good at in life is, is Legos. <clears throat> well, let's hear the Word of God this morning as we come uh, to hear Scripture. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, Consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God." Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are His house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. The author is calling the church to the absolute necessity and total desirability of our considering our Lord Jesus Christ in His offices as our apostle and high priest. He's urging us to take advantage of every opportunity to bring our eyes to bear on Him, our ears to the task of listening to Him of our minds to be absorbed with that which has been revealed about Him, and our imaginations fired by the truths that we discover there. He wants us to reflect on and contemplate the glories of the Son of God. And the reality is, for many of us, we think of Him so little that we know Him so little that we therefore love Him so little, and consequently we trust Him so little. And if we are going to trust Him and love Him, we must know Him, and if, we must, if we're going to know Him, then we have to think of Him, consider Jesus, the great high priest, or the great apostle and high priest of our confession. He is the one that God sent. The word apostle means to be sent. He was sent as a a prophet of God to bring the Word of God to the church of God. And He is our great priest whose task it is to bring human beings like us and to reconcile us to God. So, we're thinking about Jesus. You notice His human name there. We're thinking about Jesus in His office His office as our mediator, our reconciler, and as our Savior. 
And in the rest of this passage, we are to look and consider Jesus and His faithfulness, consider Jesus and His worth, and consider Jesus and His people. Let's unpack that together. First of all, consider Jesus and His faithfulness. He was faithful, it says, to Him who appointed Him or made Him literally, just as Moses was also faithful in all God's house. And so, these two men who are now occupying our thinking as we come to this new section of Hebrews, these two great men who kind of are either end of the spectrum of biblical revelation, Moses, who gives us the first five books of the Bible, and Jesus, our great Savior, these two men who are outstanding men as men, that's how they're being discussed here. You notice that emphasis by using Jesus' human name. And these two men are considered here in relation to their office as ministers or servants to God's church, whether in the Old or in the New Covenant. So, what is in view here is their office. That is the work that they have been called to do. They have been called to be servants. The Lord Jesus Himself said, you remember, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. In that great lesson that He taught His disciples when He washed their feet, and He poured out the water into the basin, He put on the badge of a servant, and He washed their feet, and He tells the disciples that if He doesn't serve them with salvation, then they will have no salvation. They will not be cleansed unless He serves them with salvation. The Lord Jesus came into the world to be a minister of the gospel. Moses was appointed to be a minister of the gospel also. These two great men. And the thing is that's emphasized about both of these men is that they were ni- neither of them self-appointed. They were appointed by God. Both of them were made, made or appointed ministers over God's house. God appointed them to minister to Him and to His people. So, let's look at these two aspects then of of this verse. God appointed Moses. You notice those words, just as Christ was faithful, just as Moses also was faithful in God's house. There's a comparison. We can actually make a comparison between Moses and Jesus here. It is impossible to exaggerate the importance of Moses to Judaism and therefore to us as Christian people. In the days in in which the writer is writing, Moses was venerated. And we get an insight into the kind of man that Moses was if we read Numbers chapter 12. We won't read it this morning. You can read it for your own leisure this afternoon. But in Numbers chapter 12, we have Moses' family, Moses' family, Aaron and Miriam. These were two great figures at the time, outstanding people. But they were were virtually organizing a coup d'etat to usurp Moses' ministry. And they've been criticizing something Moses did. He'd married a Cushite woman and they're challenging his, his, his authority as a prophet. They, they were saying God spoke through them. 
just as much as God spoke through Moses. Why should Moses be the leader? Why should Moses be up there in front leading the people when they could do the job just as well as he did? And there are some things about Moses then that are unpacked there that teach us why it is that the writer here says that he was faithful in all his house. In fact, the writer will go on to actually quote from uh, the the language, the, the story in Numbers chapter 12. We're told something, first of all, about his humility. His humility before God was unique. He would not defend himself against his detractors. Indeed, Numbers tells us about Moses that he was very humble or preferably meek man. He was the meekest man on the face of the earth, we're told. We're told that it was God Himself who acted to defend Moses and vindicated him by saying, my servant Moses is faithful in all my house. Not only his humility, but his authority before God was unique. Moses was especially called and anointed to the epic task of being the leader of Israel. He was an apostle like the Lord Jesus. He was an apostle. That is, that word means to send out. It's the word apostello that's used in Exodus 3 in the Greek translation when it says, I will send you, God says to Moses, I will send you to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And the claim that Aaron and Miriam that God spoke through them was absolutely right. God did speak through Aaron and Miriam. Miriam voices one of the great songs of redemption that we find in the Bible. She, she sings it in an inspired, prophetic way. She sings this great song of praise to God. But God distinguishes between other prophets and this man, Moses. Let me read it to you. The Lord said, listen to my words. When a prophet of the Lord is among you, I reveal myself to him in visions. I speak to him in dreams. But this is not true of my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak face to face, or literally mouth to mouth, clearly and not in riddles. Moses gave Israel and us the first Scriptures, and so therefore his authority was unique. His intimacy with God, not only his humility and his authority, but his intimacy with God was unique. He had up-close and personal encounters with God in a way that nobody else did. Listen to God speaking. With Him I speak mouth to mouth, clearly, not in riddles. He sees the form of God. You remember the burning bush? He sees the fire, the flame, but he sees the bushes not consumed. The self-existent fire was a created manifestation of the invisible and immaterial God who burns like fire on Mount Horeb, on Mount Sinai. God creates a glory. He creates a a material manifestation by which He communicates with Moses. He creates a voice that Moses hears. He hears the words of God through this created voice. No one else had that experience. His intimacy with God was unique. His ministry, therefore, before God was unique. 
He was a prophet. He brought the Word of God. In verse 5, it says this, Moses was faithful in in all of God's house, testifying about what would be said in the future. He was a prophet who was always looking forward into the future. He was talking about this one who was coming, this great prophet who was coming, whose word would be fulfilled exactly, down to the very letter. This one who was coming who would in himself bring together all of the revelation of God that had been given, and in himself personalize that revelation of God. Moses spoke about him. Jesus said, if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. Moses' ministry was unique, pointing forward to the Lord Jesus Christ. He was a prophet, and he was a priest. He belonged to the house of Levi, and he acted as a priest. Moses and Aaron, we're told in Psalm 99, were among the priests. He offered sacrifices on behalf of the people. He built altars for the people. He sprinkled the altar with the blood as a sign that the blood satisfied the demands of God's law and that the people were cleansed. And as a priest, he was responsible to plead the cause of the people. There's one occasion, particularly in Exodus 32, when Moses apparently pleads with God and argues with God that he might spare the people who deserved the judgment that God was threatening. And in that pleading with God, he even gets to the point where he says, Oh God, judge me and spare them. Pour out your wrath on me and spare them. God says to Moses effectively, Not yet. I'll spare them. There's going to come a priest whom God will not spare. When Jesus comes and He stands in for us and He mediates for us and He intercedes for us, when He intercedes and says, me, not them, His sacrifice is accepted and He lays down His life for His people. Moses is outstanding. The writer says he is faithful in all of God's house in everything that God has to do with, in all of His people, among His people, He is faithful. And so Deuteronomy says about Moses, since then, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom God knew face to face, who did all these miraculous signs and wonders the Lord sent him to do in Egypt, to Pharaoh and all his officials, the whole land. No one has ever shown the mighty power and performed the awesome deeds that Moses did in the sight of of all Israel. Moses was faithful. God appointed him. He was faithful. And God appointed Jesus. You see this. God appointed Jesus, and he was faithful. They're being compared at this point. They're being compared as men at this point. Oh, one of these men is a sinner. Moses was a failure. Moses fell short. He did not get into the promised land. You remember he died on Mount Pisgah viewing the promised land from a distance, and God arranged for his burial. The angels buried him. He did not enter the promised land because he was a sinner. But that did not mean that as a shepherd of Israel, as an elder of Israel, as a servant of Israel, that he did not faithfully 
perform his office, that he did not faithfully do his work. And I think Moses is an example to everybody who who is a servant of the church, that we do our work for the glory of God. And God uses and blesses and can honor our work as He honored Moses' work. But Jesus here, in His humanity, is appointed to the office of being a minister to the people of God. It's emphasizing His human nature. Now, we know what lay behind this. We know that the triune God willed to save a people out of the world, He willed that in effecting the salvation of those people, that the triune God would act as one, as God always acts as one, because He is one. And as He acts particularly towards created reality, wherever He acts, the action terminates in one or other of the persons. And the action about salvation terminates in the work of the Son becoming man, becoming the mediator between God and man, and as the mediator, living a life of obedience to the Father, living a life of obedience to God on behalf of other human beings. And He was faithful. Jesus the man is faithful in all His parts, in all that He does, in all His service. Consider Jesus and His faithfulness as a human, giving Himself, serving us, serving us with salvation, giving His life as a ransom for many, the apostle and priest of our confession. Secondly, consider Jesus and His worth. Read on with me. Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house himself. He's now arguing, you see, that you can compare Jesus as a man with Moses the man in terms of the office they had and the work they did in their office, and he's saying that Moses and, and Jesus, though their office was different in degree, were faithful in fulfilling that office. Now he's saying, but you can't just stop there. You have to now pause and remind yourself that Jesus is greater than Moses. And he's greater because two things, two reasons. He is the builder. He is the builder of the house of God. Now, we pause for a moment. How are we to understand this word house of God here? We know that it applies to Israel. Thus shall you say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel. The household of Israel was the nation of Israel, was the people of Israel. They were God's household. He had had brought them to Himself. He declared them to be His. He put a circle around them and said, these are mine. They belong to Him. They're holy to the Lord. That's been kind of caught up and illustrated in the opening words of verse 1, holy brothers, and sisters. You're set apart for God. And the messages of the prophets were that when the Messiah came, He would build a temple, because this word house can be used of a temple. And so, in Zechariah 6, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, the man whose name is the branch, it's the Messiah, shall branch out from his place, and he shall build a temple for the Lord It is He who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit 
and rule on his throne. God makes a promise to David that he will raise up a descendant from his family who will build the house of God, that is, a holy temple, not Solomon, but a greater temple, and whose throne will be established forever. So, whether you think of the created order as a a temple that God has made for Himself, or whether you think of Israel as a people in whom God, among whom God dwells, or you think of a temple as a place where God is very present, the house of God represents the place where God is pleased to dwell. Now, here's the point. God is the source and maker of all things. We were told that in chapter 1. We were told that God, acting in an action that terminates with the Son, is the source and maker of all things in this, in this old creation. If we think of created reality, the earth, the planets, the stars, space, this created reality, all of it, all of it was made by whom? We're told in chapter 1 it was made by the Son. Son of God. He made it all. He built it all. It's in His hands. He established it all of the old creation. And here in, the new, here in Hebrews, we're thinking not only of that old creation, but we're now thinking of this new creation. The new creation is the church. The new creation is the calling of men and women, boys and girls, into a new family, a new household. And this family, this new family, this new creation, the household of God, the church, has been made, is being built by Jesus Himself. It is His. It is His. I will build my church, He says. I will build my church. And so, the author is saying this, that Jesus, or the Son of God, who chooses to unite Himself with humanity in the person of Jesus, is the builder of all things, and in the old creation, He is the builder of all things in the new creation, and as such, He is worthy of glory and honor as God. He is worthy of glory and honor in His glorified human nature. Even as He is now, He has raised our human nature, and He has raised it into the presence of God, and His human nature has been transfused, infused by His glory, the glory of God, transformed by the glory of God. He, he has been glorified, and we, we praise and honor the glorified Lord Jesus who sits on the throne of the universe. Imagine, God has taken humanity into His glory. He will not share His glory with anybody else, but He has glorified the humanity of Jesus Christ, and we are to give honor and glory to that glorified humanity. And we are to give Him glory as the head of the church, as the head of the church, the Son of God, who rightly deserves our worship. Now, here's here's the issue. This is what we are doing when we're worshiping. When we are worshiping, we are assigning assigning 
to the Son of God, that honor which is due only to divine excellences. We are assigning honor and glory, admiration and praise. I mean, we assign these things to one another. We admire, we honor, we praise one another, and that's a good thing. You adore the people you love. That's a good thing. But here we're assigning the adoration, the honor, the glory, the praise that is due to divine excellences. It's in a different ballpark here. We're in a different area here, different dimension here. We are assigning our praise and glory to divine excellences, and we are learning in worship to trust, to believe in, to fear, to obey, to love, and to submit to infinite holiness, infinite goodness, infinite righteousness, infinite power, to acknowledge He who is the first cause and the last end of all things, and the sovereign Lord of all. That's who are we to consider. When we come to worship, consider Jesus, who is all of this to us, all of this to us, because He is the builder of God's house. Not only that, but He's greater than Moses because He's not only the builder of the house, He is the Son. Both Jesus and Moses are faithful in the work they do in the family of God. They're faithful in the task, but there's a distinction between them. Moses is a servant. He's a good servant. He is never criticized. In the book of Hebrews, he is only praised. Moses is only praised. We're, we're told that he is a great, one of the great heroes of the faith. He gave evidence of things unseen. He trusted. He, he despised the riches and wealth of Egypt because he was looking for a city. He's a great man of faith. But he was a servant in the house. Like every other servant in the church, every other minister in the church, every other elder in the church or shepherd in the church, like Moses, a servant in the house, part of the house, a member of the household of God. We, we, we are… ministers are not rulers. They are not tyrants. They are not to lord it over the people of God, but they are to serve the people of God. That's what the word minister means. We serve the church by serving the church with salvation. We, we proclaim the salvation that God offers to men and women and, and ministers, it, ministers to it to us through those whom He sets aside to serve. Moses was like that, but he, like us, was in the house, in the house. But Christ is the Son over the house, over the house. He has the nature of the God who made it, the Son in His humanity. You notice here it's the word, the Messiah, that's used, Christ. The, the, we're, we're now being reminded of Jesus' office as the Messiah, Christ. Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. 
Moses worked in the house of another. Jesus worked in his own house. Remember Jesus told a parable of a vineyard, and uh, it had been rented out. People had to look after it, care for it, and so on. And uh, the owner sent his servants, and they bloodied and bullied, and they hit the servants, and they killed the servants. Then eventually he sends a son, and they did the same to the son, the son who in, whose estate it was, the son whose, whose vineyard it was. They killed the son. Jesus says to them, the servants were my servants, the prophets. They came like Moses again and again and again, speaking to Israel, uh, challenging Israel. And now God has sent His Son. God has sent His Son. Moses was faithful in the house, and as one who was faithful, he testified to the things that were to be spoken later, that is, things that were yet to come. Then the Son came. And as we think of the Son coming, we, we, we think of how He is now to be worshipped. In Revelation chapters 4 and 5, we have a description of the throne in heaven. There is one sitting on the throne. In chapter 4, God is sitting on the throne. In chapter 5, the Lamb is sitting on the throne. There are not two occupants to the throne. There is one throne and one king. The Lamb of God sits upon the throne of God. And as the heavenly worshipers reflect on the great work that has been done by the one who sits upon the throne, that is by God, whether that work finds its termination point in the Holy Spirit or its termination point in what the Son does, that one God the heavenly beings, the 24 elders, fall down before Him who is seated on the throne, and they worship Him who lives forever and ever, and they cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are You, O Lord and God, to receive glory, honor, and power, for You created all things, and by Your will they existed and are created. They worship Him as Creator, and they worship Him as Redeemer. They go on to, in chapter 5 to sing a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Brothers and sisters, we are to consider that Jesus is worthy of worship as the Creator and the Redeemer of His people, worthy of worship as the One who is our Maker and our Mediator, our Apostle and our Priest, the One who is worthy of our adoration and our praise. Consider Jesus. Thirdly, consider Jesus and His people. Look at this last verse here, verse 6. And we, 
Whenever the writer to the Hebrews says we, he's including those who got his original note and those of us who read his note, who are believers. He's including you and I. The we in Hebrews is always definitive of those who believe. He identifies himself regularly with this word we, with those who are believers. We've heard the good news of the gospel. We believe that good news. We've accepted that good news. We've received the Christ who is offered in that good news. We belong to the we who have been twice born, born not only physically, but born spiritually. We. Paul puts it like this in Ephesians. We are no longer strangers and sojourners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Or he says to the Ephesians, we are called the household of faith. Believers belong to the household of God. Do you remember earlier on I said this word house can be used for temple? And that is not, that's not stretching the reality here, because this household of God is called a spiritual house. It's called a temple. Believers are called living stones who are building this temple, parts of this temple. Each believer is a living stone that is aligned to Jesus Christ, who is the chief cornerstone. That is, He is the pivotal point from which the whole building, not only on which it rests, but from which it derives its shape and its, its architecture. And we have to be aligned to Him, to Jesus. And by being aligned to Him, by being joined to Him, we come alive spiritual. We are living stones in this spiritual house that is being built. This house is described as a temple. And all believers in the First Peter 2 are a holy priesthood who offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The whole structure is joined together in its relationship to Jesus. The thing that binds us together is not that we look alike, not that we dress alike, not that we speak the same language. I speak English, you speak a hybrid. I mean, there's no, these are not the things. I'm kidding. You know I'm kidding, don't you? I love it. I, uh, in fact, people are complaining to me at the door these days. That I need to go back to Britain, relearn my accent, because I'm getting more American by the day. So, don't, don't knock it. Uh, but if what relates us are not external things. What relates us to each other is what? That we know and love the Lord Jesus. That's the bottom line. That's what we have. We have Him. That's what binds us together. That's why Paul can say that the whole structure related in its relationship to Christ is growing, growing, he says, into a holy temple in the Lord, which is, in fact, the dwelling place of God. The dwelling place of God. And you better know that, that Jesus values the household, the church of God. He shed His blood for the house of God, His church. From heaven He came and sought her to be His holy bride, and with His blood He bought her, and for her life He died. 
and he took on our humanity, and he endured the assaults of Satan and death on the cross that he might build his church. Consider Jesus. We are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Okay. Now, when I prepared this sermon earlier in the week, I was taking this if here to be a conditional if. And I think there may be some merit to that. Then this morning, I I woke very early, as I told you, and, and I thought, if I go back to sleep, I'm going to sleep in, so I'll just stay awake. And I thought, I'll, I'll read something light. So I picked up John Owen. Uh, you really have to read some of John Owen to know that there's no light reading in John Owen. But he is a blessing, and he asked this question, is this a condition, conditional, if, or is it a description? Well, it's very, very hard to fall out with John Owen. You really, really need to be very confident in yourself. And I'm not that confident. So, he's kind of persuaded me that actually it's a description. We are his house who hold fast our confidence and boasting in our hope. That's what he's saying. And that makes sense. I'm not saying there is not a conditional element to that, because if we're not doing that, then we don't belong to the house. If we're not holding fast our hope, if we're kind of letting it go, if we're, if we're finding ourselves under the pressure of a world that is hostile to the things of God, if we find ourselves uh, under threat, if, if we're thinking to ourselves for one minute that, that like some of these Hebrews may be, have, were doing, that the future, the future glories are not as important as the present situation I'm in, that the invisible Christ can be easily surrendered to the very visible people and issues that I'm facing in my life now. That my confession of faith and my spoken confession to the world can go on silent because of the persecution, misunderstanding, and misrepresentation of the world. But if you're in that position, if you're holding lightly to your confession, if you are throwing it away or in the business of throwing it away or slackening on it, I want to warn you, you, that may be an indication you are not, you are not in the house. You may be on our rolls here, but you're not in the house. Hold of God. Because here I think if, so, so I think either way we get to the same conclusion. I think John Owen is right when he says, here we have a description of what it means to be a Christian. This is what Christians do. This is what it means, what it looks like. Christian people are people who belong to the household of God, and as such, they hold fast their confidence, and they boast in their hope. What is this confidence? What is our hope? In Hebrews, the hope has to do with the last days. It has to do with the last day. It has to do with that day 
when the trumpet of the Lord shall resound, and with a loud cry of command, the dead shall be raised. The Lord shall descend, and we shall meet Him in the air. This hope is the hope of the return from heaven for His church of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the great hope that drives this book and that is constantly within the horizon of the thought of the author as he speaks. And in the New Testament, the hallmark of believers is described in this way by Paul writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4. They are those who look for the dawning of the day of the Lord, that last day, and who love His appearing. They love the thought of His appearing. It may be at morn when day is awaking, when sunshine through darkness and shadow is breaking, that Jesus will come in the fullness of glory to receive from the world His own. That day is coming. And believers love the thought of that day. Believers look for that day. Believers long for that day. They cry, come, Lord Jesus, come. He's saying, those who are of this house are those who do what Paul, writing to the Romans, says is the very vital mark of true Christianity. They are those who rejoice in the hope of sharing in the glory of God. Sharing in the glory of God. So, what does it mean to be those who hold their confidence to the end? Well, we live in a world where there's lots of political pressures on the church all across the world, not just here in America. Those political pressures have been there, by the way, for a long time. They're not new. They've been growing in strength over a very long time. I was reading just early this morning, very early this morning, about uh, a friend of mine who's a minister in Dundee in a free church there, Presbyterian church there. And he was just recounting the spectacular uh, shift in church attendance in Scotland in the last 50 years. It has all kinds of implications for the school system. When I was in a public school, going to school as a boy, we had, we had assembly in the morning, and the minister would come. The minister from the local Presbyterian church would come. We would, we would sing the psalms and the paraphrases. We'd hear the Bible read. We'd hear him give a little homily, whatever. Uh, he would say, good morning, boys and girls. We would say, good morning, back in unison. And since that period, church attendance is less, I think, than 2%. Churches, church of Scotland is closing a church a week. We're under pressure. And the political posture required of the church is in every age that as we wait the latter days disclosure of Jesus' glory as the Son of Man, our present posture 
is to be that described here. Hold fast your confidence and your boast in hope. It is to be patient, watchful endurance. Patient, watchful endurance. This is constantly a theme in the Bible, in the Gospels, Mark 13, where Jesus, speaking to His, to his disciples, he, he quotes from, or he, he speaks these words from Mark 13. Therefore, He says, keep awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight, or at cockcrow, or at dawn, or else he may find you asleep when he comes suddenly. What are we to be doing? Patient, watchful endurance. We're to be like the disciples. We're unable to be like in Gethsemane when the Lord Jesus was facing that crisis of the cross and they fell asleep. Jesus scolds them. He does not reject them, but He scolds them, and He says, keep awake and pray that you may not come into the time of trial. We are living, we are watching, we are waiting for the coming again of Jesus. And Jesus, we're to consider the Jesus who is our, the hope of His people. His people's hope is people's wealth. We are to consider this Jesus our thoughts are to be on Him. Our eyes are to be on Him. Our ears are to be open listening to Him. Our hearts are to go out towards Him. Our lives to be surrendered before Him. This is what it means to be a Christian. And when you've got that right, when you're considering Jesus, let me tell you, the things of earth grow strangely dim. The things of this world that are ethereal, ephemeral, that are passing away, that are nothing, that are steam from the kettle, that are here today, gone tomorrow. Even these carbon units that are sitting in front of me in the pews in this room today, these carbon units will just dissolve into dust. That's the reality. And it's the reality of every powerful person and every power block and every great corporation and every great government everywhere. It will all come to nothing. Christ remains. And those who belong to Him shall be with Him, for they will see Him as He is. Come, Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus, come. We pray that You would hasten the day when every eye will see You. Even those who pierced You will look upon Him whom they pierced, we pray for your greater glory. Amen.